Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ross Ellenhorn. Dr. Ellenhorn has a very unique approach to treating and talking about addiction. He makes it very clear from day one that addiction is not a moral failure. People who are addicted are not bad people. They are just trying to cope with some form of pain. He's empathetic and caring, and that's why I had to try to give him a call. Thankfully, he answered. Dr. Ellenhorn is a trained sociologist, psychotherapist, and social worker. His incredible book, How We Change and the 10 Reasons Why We Don't, was published by HarperCollins in seven different languages around the world. Before we begin, to thank you for checking out the new show, I'm giving away a PlayStation 5. All you have to do is like and subscribe to enter. Details in the comments. Now please welcome Dr. Ross Ellenhorn to the Welcome Home Podcast. I'm actually doing a lot of research on this right now with a team at um, Rutgers University, this idea of fear of hope. Uh, it's been very exciting because we really have been able to isolate it and to show that there is a thing called fear of hope. In other words, that's not fear of failure, not fear of success, not anxiety, not depression. There is this thing about fearing hope. And when you think about it, and you, you, you know, you never hear a, a minister or a rabbi or, or, or anyone else say, go and hope it's easy. They're always talking about hope takes courage. So, so why is that? Why is hope hard? Every time you hope, you're making something, uh, you're appointing something as important to you. So, you know, it's Christmas and you, you, you don't know what you want for Christmas and your mom and dad ask you, you can't figure it out. And the minute you say bike, a bike becomes this important thing in your life. And not only do you notice that you want a bike, you notice that you're bikeless. You don't have a bike. And so hope is always pointing out something important and something you don't have. And so hope always is a risk because you may not get something you've now appointed as important. So hope is difficult that way. If you've had real profound disappointments, what you learn is something um, really difficult, which is this experience that, this experience of helplessness, I can't get my needs met. I can't want something and then get that thing. And so that can create this sense that you're afraid of trying again, which means that you're afraid of hoping because hope is the thing that moves you towards things. Hope draws you towards things that can then make you feel disappointed. I don't know if you, do you know anything about this thing called resignation syndrome? No. So there's these, uh, there's these, it's a very sad, there's these uh, uh, Syrian uh, refugees in Sweden and mostly in Sweden. And uh, these are children and they, they really function okay. Uh, even though they've been through significant trauma. Um, and then their parents uh, apply for asylum. And uh, maybe their parents don't get accepted. And then when they go to appeal, the child goes to sleep. And they could sleep for a year. And basically, they, they sort of their parents have to kind of care for them, make sure they, they, they eat. So why is it that this child becomes resigned in that way at the point when actually something good could happen, when they weren't resigned at the point when all these bad things were happening? happening. In my mind, it's because they're terrified of what happens if it doesn't happen. And they're terrified of hoping. So they're going to take a break from hope for a year while they sleep this through. And the remarkable thing that happens is they wake up when and if the parents get that asylum and there's something going on and the, the, the different ways the parents handle them or touch them where they know it's all right now to hope again. And so all of us have a little bit of that in us, this fear that if I hope again, if I want things, Will I have this experience of uh, lacking and not having that thing in my life? That was a really long answer. I hope that's okay. But No, that's in incredibly interesting. And I'm sure it's very relatable because I remember, you know, you're fresh out of high school. You, you try to start a business. You try to make some sort of change. 
and there's this uh, this hopeful ambition, and it, it causes inspiration, motivation, passion. But when challenges happen, and especially if you're ambitious, you can almost fear hope and almost use it as you're numb and you're not as ambitious. So is the fear of hope equal in everybody or are the type A ambitious people um, more at risk because they, they've experienced probably more failures? Well, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to figure out who the people are all the time who are fearing hope and who's not. What, what I know is, is, is what inspired me to think about this was working with the people I work with, which is people who have been diagnosed with really severe psychiatric issues. And they've been through profound disappointment. You know, you're, you're just about to leave college or it's your first year in college. And all of a sudden something happens. You get pulled out. You get put in the hospital. You try again. You get pulled out, put in the hospital. And those events are profound. They shift a person's sense of what their future is going to look like. And so I'm really convinced that the people I work with, often what's being diagnosed is a psychiatric issue about motivation and their ability to kind of use care and connect with treaters is actually the result of them fearing hope. It's not psychiatric. And we're hurting them because wow. we're saying, oh, you're broken, not it's understandable that you're afraid of hope, you know? Um, I do think that uh, at the point in infancy when we're connecting with our parents, that's called attachment. And there's a lot of theory about attachment right now that it's really not just attachment. It's about hope that the child is reaching out for their parent. The parent is reciprocating. And when they don't, the child is feeling uh, this massive disappointment and helplessness, the sense that the world doesn't meet their needs. And so I do think that if you've had enough of those disappointments early on with your parents and your experience, that it does lead to this fear of hope. Wow. One of the main reasons I wanted to reach out to you and how I originally found your work is you have this incredibly counterintuitive way to talk about addiction and trying mm -hmm. to get away from addiction. And in a very small way in my personal life, it might have been coffee. And I tell mm -hmm. myself, I used to, until I found your work, say, coffee makes me anxious, no coffee. And then I shifted that to, actually, it's my favorite part of my day. I love the taste of coffee, <laughs> but I love not feeling anxious even more. And in an extreme mm -hmm. way, when it comes to like alcohol, I would think, hey, alcohol's bad. Whenever I'm nervous, whenever I'm stressed out, I reach for a, a glass of wine. And I shifted that to, actually, I really love red wine. I love reading reviews from nerds on forums talking about <laughs> their favorite red wine. But I love myself even more when I can sit with stress and I could sit with anxiety even more than the taste of those things. And I, I just love the way you embrace, even in an extreme circumstance, to say, hey, you need to acknowledge some of the benefit. It's not all bad. We have to be honest about uh, drug use in that way. Yeah, yeah. Um I have all kinds of ways to respond to that. Um, and and let, let me start with, with this, which is that um, we are surrounded by mind-altering substances. Some of those are made legitimate by the medical establishment, and some aren't. But they're all mind-altering. Um, I, 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 take, I take Ritalin because I have some, um, you know... Um, 
attention issues, which mo- which a lot of entrepreneurs have, by the way. Um, that is like so close to meth. It really is. It's very close to it, but it's a legitimate pill form of it. So we, we're surrounded by these things. And some people use them in ways that enhance their lives. And some people will use them in ways that don't enhance their lives. But the idea that they're all bad is kind of ridiculous. People have been using these substances to alter their consciousness, alter their ways of thinking for centuries. Um, I've always thought it'd be kind of fun to go to, you know, because I speak at substance abuse conferences all the time and talk about how much I love alcohol. It's great. All the different flavors. I I love scotches. I love love aperitifs. I love, you know, there's all this great stuff out there. Great beer. Um... And, and yet there are people that have problems with that, right? The other area is this idea that when you have a problem with that, you have a disease. I'm not convinced, and a lot of people aren't convinced that it's a disease. Um, I, and I've come up with a really, I think, really interesting word for addiction. Um, and, 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 and I think you'll appreciate it. Um, the category for addiction uh, the word for that category is addiction. It doesn't have to have some other category like disease. And addiction fits within habits. Okay, so um, I have all these habits. I have the habit of um, if I see my dog, it's very hard for me not to pet it. Um, I have the habit of a marriage that I love and um, I'm upset if things aren't going well in it and I, and I, and I miss my fix of being with my wife. Um, I have a habit of my son. I have a habit of all these things. And habits can become a problem. Um, And that's what this thing is that we're calling addiction. It's a habit. It's part of something we're doing that's hard to break. And it's very serious, but it's hard to call it a disease. That's that's kind of the new way people are talking about problematic habits. Um, That might mean that your brain is not completely hijacked by these substances. And that actually the problem is you need to be given room to contemplate what you want to do about it. And that's what you're describing there, right? Is, is if I just say alcohol's bad, there's no pros and cons. And contemplation is always saying on the, on, on the one hand, on the other. And so you have to be able to look at both sides of something to quit it. And that's what this thing called motivational interviewing is about, which is how do you help a person th- look at both sides without judgment? And we live in a system where it says there's no other side. Your brain's hijacked, so I have, to, I have to kind of beat you over the head that this is wrong instead of let's look at what you're giving up if you move forward. Does that? I, I gave you a long answer, but is that? No, ab- absolutely. I have a yeah. note here yeah. about motivation, motivation interviewing. And yeah. the thing that I, I wonder from my perspective and from the average podcast listener, what you're explaining about being honest about the incredible moments or the incredible benefit of something that also can be harmful. It just seems compassionate. It seems human. It seems accurate. I just wonder in the circles, the people that are writing textbooks, is this a fringe idea? Is it being embraced? Do you think this is going to be the future of addiction help is accepting that there is some great benefit as well that we need to be honest with? I, I Okay. So, so there's two answers to that. Motivational interviewing has been around a long, long time. So it's been sort of accepted. I'm, I'm not sure how it got away with being accepted, considering all these other models that basically say the brain's hijacked and you have to beat people over the head to get them to change. 
um, there's a new area called harm reduction where we people are beginning to think differently about how you approach this and seeing this as a psychological issue, not a disease. In other words, this is a person struggling with psychological issues. And so psychotherapy is starting to come into the field more when before it was sort of extracted. And psychotherapy is a field that's about you are in charge of your life and I'm here to help you support you make decisions. So I do think it's going in that direction slowly. Um, that's um, great. I'm, I'm often surprised when it's not because I'm in Boston and New York and these places, you know, that th- there's some movement more in these places than in other, other, other parts of the country. But I do think it's moving in that direction. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, I have some friends that are very vocal about the benefit and the success rate of um, systems like AA. And Mm -hmm. I was doing a little research for our podcast, and there are some wide figures saying it is an 8 to 10% success rate. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to find clarity or take the emotion out of it. Are these people that are saying this is the system, are you know they uh, coming from an emotional perspective, or is the data suggesting that these programs are eight to ten percent kind of freaks me out to be honest yeah, yeah, I know that's a that that is the number that's uh that people mentioned there's there's other numbers that are larger okay um i i i it it works for some people um um, it, it works for some people and probably what works the most in it is the fellowship that we just know that, that problematic habits are a form of estrangement, a disconnection from the world and that the medicine is attachment, is connection. And you'll hear people in AA say this, that, that the most important moments are sometimes uh, going out to eat after the meeting or getting cigarettes before the meeting. Um, and it's that sense of fellowship and connection that seems to be one of the main factors within AA. And what's sad about AA is become this, prof- you know, it, it's not supposed to be something you pay for. It's not supposed to be inside institutions. And it's become this thing that's no longer about the fellowship, but the sort of technique that's used within substance abuse programs. Um, what we do know about recovery is many people moderate their drinking and do just fine. And most people quit their problematic habits on their own without treatment. So the idea that treatment is the only answer is, is kind of a myth, right? And there is some evidence that if you quit on your own, your abstinence will last longer than if you got treatment. I think that's right. And so all these things kind of point towards treatment's good for some people. It's not good for everybody. And that there's other ways to recover than going than getting professional help. I guess there's this, I don't know if it's an elephant in the room, or it kind of makes me uncomfortable and almost a little bit sad, uh, the idea of these high-ticket, incredibly expensive recovery centers saying, this is how you get sober, your family better have $20,000 for seven days or seven weeks, whatever it is, and am I overblown and being emotional about that? Or are these kind of predatory and they don't have a long-term success rate and they're preying on vulnerable people? Um, uh, there, there are some good programs out there. A lot of these programs are really about the money. 
they're, 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 it's been very upsetting to me. And this is one of the reasons why I've, I've sort of decided to give talks and, and stuff around that area. I'm really raised in the mental health area. But when I saw this going on, I felt like this would be an interesting area to kind of enter and talk about. Um, and, um, and, and, and they're sort of collapsing all over the place in Florida and other places where these, there's these big programs because people are starting to recognize that they're ripoffs. Um, and they, and, and you know, some of these interventionists, um, they're, they're paid by these places or they get kickbacks for getting people there. There's all kinds of things going on that is almost similar to pushing drugs, you know, trying to get people to buy your product in this way. And, and let me tell you, let me tell you the greatest, most brilliant sales pitch of all time. Uh, let's say I'm a, to- to- I work, I, 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 I'm a salesman at a Toyota dealership and you come in and you, and you're looking at a car and I say, you've really got to get this car. And, 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 and then you change your mind and, and I say to you, you know, the reason why you don't want that car is that something's really sick about you. There's something really wrong about you. And then you say to me, no, I'm not sick. And then I say, you're, you're in denial. Uh, you, you don't get how sick you are. Uh, and then you, you get on the phone and you call your parents and you say, this guy, he's, he's, he's trying to talk me into buying this car. And your parents say, get out of there. And then, and then I say, well, your, your parents, they're enablers. They're part of your illness. Right? That's the most brilliant sales pitch ever. And so this disease model... It, it has this way of manipulating people into going into treatment because it totally disassembles any argument against it. And by the way, you know, I'm trained as a sociologist. The role of a patient is to get help. You're not free from responsibility when you're patient. If you don't get help when you're patient, people blame you. And so once you're told you're diseased, it's very hard to reject the help because you're, you're basically not you're, not, you're doing something deviant from your role as a patient when you do that. And so the disease model is remarkable that way. And the disease model, it, it's always been there, but it took off the minute there was something in the United States called the Parity Act, which was that, which was that insurance companies had to pay the same amount for behavioral care as for physical care. Oh, and wow. when, when that hit, venture capitalists entered the market. There's just venture capitalists everywhere buying these programs. And all of a sudden, you see the disease model just take off. And so oh, it's man. really part of branding. And now programs have a new term. So then, so they went from they went from problematic habit to dual diagnosis. Now, dual diagnosis when I, when I was raised means a serious psychiatric issue and a serious addiction issue. Now it means almost everybody. So now they're saying not only are you sick in here, you're sick in your you're sick in your mental health, and we do both things. We work on both things. Then they came up with Trauma, everything's trauma. Now, trauma is a serious business. It's a serious thing, but it's now that they're branding. You're traumatized, you're sick in the head, and you got an addiction, and we work on all three of those things. It's just part of that mill of branding that these these companies are doing. I'm not going to lie. That kind of makes me sad on one side, and it, it's yeah. very dark, but on the yeah. other side, guys like you, guys like Dr. Gabar Mate, yeah, you guys yeah. are saying yes to podcasts, you guys are doing talks. So on the one side, there is that sad kind of predatory darkness that actually makes me really sad. But then knowing that there are vocal people like you, I feel like information always wins. 
So I, yeah. I would ask you, does information win? What does that model look like in the next five, 10 years? Are, are we going to move towards how you guys are talking about addiction or are we going to stay in this disease model? Well, uh, paradigms shift when there's too many problems with a certain model and there's voices out there pointing out a new one. So the addiction as disease model and this kind of selling a program model, it's beginning to get seen as having its own problems. And so I do, and I give these conferences every year called Shifting the Paradigm, and, and they're about this. I, we, we all feel, who are in the middle of this, that it's shifting, that it's changing. The, the other thing that, that made it shift, uh, s- sad to say, is that, uh, is that, uh, is that uh, white people started to um, OD. And so no longer was this this kind of racist thing, you know, which was really what the war on drugs was. All of a sudden, compassion came out, right? Because, you know, people in power were losing family members. And so that's also going to shift this kind of way of thinking about this too. Um, and the fact that the fact that we're moving towards a more psychological view of this will help too. That this this person is a deciding person, and it's our job to provide them a lot of compassion and listening to help them kind of figure out their recovery. So I do think it's going in that direction. That's good. On yeah. shifting to the reasons we don't change, hopefully mm-hmm. helping someone, what is there one that sticks out to you that the majority of the people that come to you, the majority of the people that read your book say, that reason right there, that's what I've been stuck on? Or is it, is it all 10? Or is there one that comes up a lot? Yeah, that they're all based on 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 two of them on some level. One is the the just the basic one, which is that if I try again, I'm going to witness myself not succeeding again. I'm going to have another experience of disappointment. And if I don't try again, I don't have to risk that. And the other is called existential aloneness which is if I see myself trying, it means I'm in charge of my life. And that's scary to me. And I don't want to look at that. Those are kind of the two founding things, you know? And and the interesting thing to me about the 10 reasons not to change is that a person's actually doing something caring about themselves when they don't change because they're trying to protect something from disappointment. They're trying to protect hope in a weird way. Like if I get hurt again, I'll have less hope. And so if I don't try, I'm kind of holding on to hope. And if I can look at a person that way, I actually see their struggle in staying the same as having a certain level of self-compassion and, and, and even courage to it in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Like they're doing the best they can and they don't want to have this experience that might destroy any sense that they can make their lives work. In the fear of hope, is there an element of being attracted to sameness, being a- attracted to uh, what we're familiar with just from an evolution perspective that we are trying to just protect ourselves by doing what is natural, what is familiar? Is that a, a part of it as well, the idea of sameness? Yes. So let me answer that in two ways evolution wise you know 
evolution is always based on some level of, of being conservative, conserving your energy, you know, and being protective. Uh, on the other hand, we're the animal that, um, that invents like that. That's what makes us human. That's, that's what our, we have this thing called a neocortex, which is this thing that's based on collaborating in order to invent things. And so staying the same is also kind of not, doesn't fit within our species, what we're supposed to do, you know? But changing really raises what's called, I think I mentioned before, our existential anxiety. I'm in charge of my life. And, and that is a terror we all live with. I am the, even if bad things happen to me, I'm still on some level the driver of my experience. And so there's no one there to quite protect me. I'm going to have to make this work. And that's terrifying. And that's why people go to Banana Republic. And that's why they go to TGI Fridays. And that's why they do everything possible to not be original. We're born with this chance to be as unique and as original as possible. And most of us fail at that. And it's because of this fear of our own accountability for our lives. Yeah. When you were talking about the fear of not being successful with change, I wonder, maybe this is just me personally, or if this is something you experience uh, with your clients. When I think about not successfully changing, maybe 10% of it, I could live with not changing because I know it's difficult. I know how hard it is mm -hmm. for me. I feel like 90% of it is social. I have people around me I don't want to let down. I have expectations or I, I have expectations of others. Is it safe to say or am I a unique case to think that I'm kind of okay if I mess up? I know what I'm doing is very tough, but I don't think other people understand how tough this is and I don't want to let them down. Um, is there an element of social pressure? To not change? Uh, a, a social pressure to, if I don't change, other people are going to judge me. I'm not going to judge yeah. myself. Yeah, that's another reason. Yeah, yeah. That, that um, you know, um, I'll, I'll let down my family, right? They'll be disappointed. All the people that are kind of watching, I'll let down. That's that's the insanity of my field, that we have people who, who, who their day is only about changing. They wake up in the morning and they're in treatment. And everybody's standing over them saying, are you going to change today? What's your progress? Where are you in relationship to your treatment plan? That is the most insane thing to do to somebody. Because you're just looking around at all these expectations constantly. you know. But we all walk around with our fear of disappointing and pleasing people with our successes. I mean, I'm, I'm almost 60 and I, when I have a success, I still call my 94-year-old mom and tell her about it. Right, because I want to keep her hopeful and excited for me. You know, I might keep the the failures away from her, but I want her to know these things. You know, so yeah, there's a constant kind of social experience of this. Yeah, that was like uh, an aha moment for me because I'm I'm thinking about if I'm trying to do something very difficult, I know how difficult it is. I know yeah. that the chances aren't in my favor, and if I don't exceed those expectations, there will be minor disappointment. But because yeah. I know what happened behind the curtain, I'm going to be okay with it. My fear yeah. is other people. And there is uh, an yeah. insanity to that, um, being okay yeah. with failure when I'm alone, but not being okay with it in a public setting. Very weird. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but it's understandable. I, I, I tell this 
I tell the story in the book about this guy we had in our program, and um, we would ask people at the beginning of group, um, how, how low is your mood in, on a scale of one to ten? And and I was a young social worker, so I went along with that. I don't really believe in giving numbers to mood anymore. But he every week he'd say two. I'm a two. And he was in the group for like six months. And about halfway through the group, these women in the group came, came to my office and they said, you know, you know, Fred's dating now. He, he, he went to their church. Fred's dating now. And then, and then a week later, Fred gave this great sermon at the church the other day. And then a week later, uh, uh, Fred got a new apartment and, and, and a new job. And he's still saying two. And then he disappeared on us. Because he was able to hold everybody's expectations down well, he got better. He didn't want anybody getting excited about his change. So he just kept saying two. And and that was a brilliant way to recover, right? He he needed that. He couldn't have other people's expectations around him, but he knew he wanted to get better, right? And that kind of matches what you're saying. Like, I can kind of handle it, but I don't want other people watching. That's so interesting. I have a, a friend that told me that they gave up social media for a period of time and they announced it and they told me that, hey, um, when I'm accountable, when I put myself out there, it helps to a degree. And that might work for some people, but it's also what a great strategy. Don't tell anyone right. that you're, you're trying to change. Don't tell anyone you're trying to lose weight or give something up. That's, I feel like I like that strategy a lot more than announcing something publicly. Well, actually, um, so, so, if you tell people that, that, that you know, sometimes it, 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 sometimes making yourself accountable works by telling people, especially like weight loss. But there's a lot of research out there that when you tell people you're on a diet, your brain then says, um, I'm already dieting. And so the act of telling people is identifying yourself as already thinner than you were before you told them, and it destroys the diet. And that's in the book too, that there's, that there's a symbolic thing you're doing when you tell people, right? That ends up getting in the way of you being able to follow through. Because there's always a tension between you and the thing you want to get to, right? You're closing that tension when you tell somebody I'm on a diet. The tension that motivates you is sort of gone because, hey, everybody knows I'm on a diet. Um, and so, so it's actually sometimes good to keep things to yourself like that. I love that. I, I'm definitely going to yeah. use that in my own life. There's some beauty <laughs> in the privacy of very ambitious goals. I, re I really like yeah. that. Uh, yeah. I've heard you speak about the Kipling-Williams study. And when you yeah. were talking about it, kind of blew my mind. So can you run me through what that is and yeah. why we fear that ostracism and that pain so much? It's a really interesting study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, th this is sort of my my passion is this: how do we get social psychology into psychiatry? In other words, there's so much that these people understand, and we ignore it in my field. What's going on for the person socially, and how's it affecting their behavior? So his work is fascinating. It's called Cyberball, and basically, you get on a computer. And you, 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 you have this little character that represents you and you throw a ball to this other character and you start throwing the ball back and forth. And there's a third character and the other character starts throwing the ball to the third character. 
And then slowly, only those two characters are throwing the ball and you're left out. And um, just that, just looking at that, now you think that these are actual people playing, but they're not. It's a computer program. The part of your brain that lights up when you're in pain lights up. You're, the people are in an fMRI machine at that point. So you're basically, when you say your feelings are hurt, there is a hurt. You're hurt at that moment. Now, um, and by the way, Williams learned this by being at a park and a Frisbee hit him. And then he started playing Frisbee with these two guys. And then the two guys were like, dude, um, you're not really invited. And they kept throwing it back and forth. And this is where he came up with this experiment. But he now tells the subjects, this is just a computer program. There's no people in the room. And their brains still light up. Which means your brain is so prepared to be in trouble when the tribe leads without you. Right? Because that's what pain is. It's so prepared for that that even if you know it's just a computer thing, you're in pain at that point. So ostracism is like this for a social animal where we need each other to survive. Ostracism is like this profoundly difficult experience. And so is other things. Loneliness. Loneliness ties with, um, with uh, cholesterol and smoking for causing heart disease because of all the stress it causes. It makes people paranoid. It makes it so they can't function anymore. I mean, the, anything that kind of removes you from the world um, causes all kinds of difficulties psychologically. And we live in a culture in the United States where um, what we do with psychiatric patients is uh, we treat them by removing them from the world. And we do the same thing with people with problematic habits. We take them away from their medicine. The medicine is social connection, social role, a sense of purpose. We take those things away from them in order to treat them. And in the substance abuse world, the strangest thing we do is we say, that's a disease and you can't come to our program until you're not showing any symptoms of that disease. You have to be abstinence to get your care. It's just, I, I can't get my mind around that one. That's insane. But that, but anyways, that's, I, I just went on a tangent from Kipling Williams to this, but what the when heck? you when you talk about how important our tribe is, it's yeah. so deeply wired. That almost drew me back to our conversation of AA. My friends that are so passionate about AA, chances are they're really passionate about the friends, the lifelong relationships yeah. they built. It sounds like having a a solid foundation and a social life is the pillar of sobriety. Yeah, yeah. So, um. When I come home from work, um, my dog goes insane and he, he'll go and grab a sock and he'll run around the house with a sock in his mouth and he'll have this look on his face like he doesn't know why he has a sock in his mouth, but he's just sort of like insane. What's going on for him right now is that um, dopamine is flying through his system because dopamine is the thing that makes us connect to others. Um, and so what we're doing with problematic habits is trying to get to a sense of well-being because we're disconnected from others, right? We're trying to kind of get to that place that feels right that we get by being connected because all of those chemicals are in our bodies and they're activated in a milder way than when you use drugs and alcohol, but they're activated when we're in love or connected to another person. And so AA is this wonderful place for creating this sense of connectedness that is so needed for your sense of well-being. I don't know if you know about, have you heard of a, a rat park? No. A rat park is uh, this guy, Bruce Alexander. Um, 
did this study. So there, there, there used to be these studies. They were famous because it was a, such a warning about drugs where they would show these – there were these rats and um, they were offered uh, um, uh, uh, water with drugs in it um, and water without. And the, and the rats would basically just keep drinking the water with drugs until they died. And they were alone in their cages. And Alexander took those rats and said, well, rats are social animals. What if we created a park for them? A little cage with lots of rats. And all of a sudden, there were a few rats that would still drink the drug-laced water. None of the rats died. Because they were having, and most of the rats were choosing the other kind of water. Because they were having these social interactions that held them, made, raised their sense of well-being. Um, and in that way, that's that's really the beauty. I mean, this is what Bill W. was pushing, a fellowship, a connection, you know? Um, I love that. That's really what AA is about. We, When I talk about your work and as we're speaking, it's very easy to understand these conversations in terms of drug addiction or drug use. But one thing that's even scarier for a lot of people is what's a scarier thing to hopeful than a relationship? Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people, I'm sure, have an incredible fear of losing this relationship, losing all the time invested, friends and family seeing a, a marriage end. So is a big part of your work besides the, the addiction also this conversation of people being afraid to, to give in a relationship? Yes, because it's my firm belief and I said this earlier, that all attachments are hopeful events. I'm risking making this person important, and I'm risking the act of reaching out to them vulnerably to connect. And the disappointment when they don't respond is profound because it matches the very disappointments we had in infancy, those moments where we reached out and we didn't get our needs met. And so all relationships are about hope. You can't have a relationship without hoping because hope is the thing that's driving you to be affectionate and connected. Um, and and it's, and it's an interesting idea that you come up with because I don't talk about it enough, but this idea that that's what we're really struggling with in some ways in intimacy is, it, can I follow my hope or am I going to shut down because I don't want to feel that rejection if it doesn't work? So a big part of that is embracing that this relationship is really great and it might not be really great eventually. And that's the beauty of the, the moment, um, not fearing it ending and grasping, grasping on in some capacity. Yeah. And also, also maybe when you, when you retract, when you don't reach out to say to yourself, you know what, I'm just taking care of myself. It's okay. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, this is me. Uh, loving myself in a way by not trying because it's so scary to reach out and that's okay. Um, the one of the things that's really important in our research and 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 I I don't know why I haven't mentioned it earlier, but it has to do with this, is that the people in our research that are most having it the hardest time are not the people that are hopeless in fear of hope, in fear hope, it's the people that have high hope in fear of hope. If you're hopeless, you're not really agitated. The world's not really upsetting because you're just sort of hopeless. But the people that are having a tough time are the ones that are hoping and then they're afraid of it. 
And so in a relationship, if you're not moving towards affection or connection, in a way, that's a sign of your hope. I've got all this hope here. Isn't that great? I'm just afraid of it. So today I didn't reach out. That's okay. And and that's really the message in the book is to stop looking at these things as bad, right? Because I'm trying to get them in that motivational interviewing place, right? These things aren't bad. They're part of your self-care. They're the way you're trying to kind of help yourself along in life. I love that. Um, do you ever, it sounds like you don't, but do you ever get into the conversation we talked about uh, the, the word disease? Do you ever think somebody is predisposed genetically to things like addiction or depression? Do you ever even speculate that there's a genetic influence or is this all how you grew up and your social social life? Oh, I, I think that there are, are, are all kinds of factors, genetic, um, uh, within the natural environment also. What, what's affecting, what are people eating? Um, what happened in your childhood? There's all kinds of factors other than the person's social place. There definitely are. And factors that are often hard to get relief for. But if a person has hope and a person is willing to accept and metabolize help, they're going to be okay. They're just going to have these things that are kind of in their way sometimes. And I don't care if that helps with a therapist or a shaman. It doesn't matter. But are they finding someone who can help them through this? The people that are having a tough time are when they have these issues and they're not able to use help well and they're not motivated. And those things have to do usually with them struggling with hope. I, I have, I have friends. Yeah, go ahead. I'm always super, I'm, I feel uncomfortable when we think about addiction or depression being genetic because that leads to the next question that this is the world's biggest lottery ever then. You don't need a mm -hmm. Powerball. You don't need to win the lottery. You'd want to win the, I guess, the chemical structure lottery. Um, and right. you certainly wouldn't want to pick the wrong straw and be predisposed to feeling anxious, depressed, and addicted. And that that makes things very sticky and murky, thinking that there yeah. is a genetic lottery in that capacity. Yeah. Yeah, I just... Uh... I get. I think it's the it's the attitude you have towards that issue that's important, not the issue, and um, and the genetics are often a smaller factor than we think. Like, yes, there are people that are really allergic to alcohol. Like, if they drink, they're gone. But those aren't the majority of people that are going into treatment programs, right? And yeah, there are people that are kind of born with depression, but there are also people that are depressed because the world screwed up or something bad has happened to them. And we're often defining those people also as having a major depression, having a diagnosis, you know? To celebrate the new podcast, I'm giving away a PlayStation 5 to one of my viewers. All you have to do is like and subscribe. That's it. Full details in the comments. Good luck.